0: to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world.
1: Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today you are listening to Percolating on Faith with Charmaine and Tony Shavala-Smith. Hello, Charmaine. Hello, Tony. <laughs> Hi, Carla. Always good to be with you. Good to be here today.
2: Hi, Carla. Good to see you.
1: Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. And so today is a really, all of our topics are interesting, but this one maybe might feel a little bit nearer and dearer to some people's hearts because I personally have a lot of complicated emotions when it comes to this very topic. I have gone full circle, I feel like, when it comes to this topic. I have loved this man. I have hated this man. I've come to understand this man a little bit more. And sometimes I just, I'm, not, I'm a nonviolent person, but can sometimes I just want to punch it, this man because so, he is annoying. There are some annoying parts about this man. And now you're wondering, gentle listener, who is this man? Well, this man is Joseph Smith Jr. Um, and I wonder if you who are listening to this podcast also feel some pretty complicated emotions when it comes to Joseph Smith Jr., um, if you're listening to this podcast, I imagine that you have. So we're going to try and maybe unpack some of those things that we are feeling about him and some things that we know about him and some things that maybe you don't know about him. We'll we'll try and give you some more information about that. So Tony and Charmaine, mm-hmm. I feel like a good place to start might either be like in community of Christ, what is our traditional thinking about Joseph Smith Jr.? Where did we come from in community of Christ? Are we supposed to love him? Are we supposed to think critically <laughs> about him? What are we supposed to do when it comes to Joseph Smith Jr.? Ah, oh, it's that's a great, great set of questions
3: there, and <laughs> and actually, it is uh, encounters with um, with people who are seekers or or ex members of the LDS church that who have kind of raised some, some concerns with us about how community of Christ people sometimes talk about Joseph jr. And also about the book of Mormon. And it, it feels, you know, even though, um, you know, the the folks I'm thinking of have really worked through a lot of stuff and, and dismantled a lot of of beliefs um, still when, when they hear, Especially long time uh, community of Christ people talk about Joseph Smith Jr. There's this, this reaction of, Ugh! you know, how how <clears throat> how irreverent, how disrespectful, and so um, so it's something we wanted to kind of explore. And so that's a, I love where you're taking us. I think that's a great place to start. Is how did we originally think or traditionally think about Joseph Jr. And even there, it's Pretty complicated, really. So we're going to just kind of do the streamlined version, though, and give you kind of a sense of um, how how RLDS and Community of Christ have typically thought about Joseph. So
2: this is a complicated relationship, Carla.
3: <laughs> this is.
2: <laughs> so we, we presume lots of people listening to this podcast know something about complicated relationships. So, <laughs> so our, our, our relationship with Joseph juniors kind of like that.
3: But in the <clears throat> traditional um, perspective, it was pretty straightforward. The idea was, you know, here's Joseph. He has all of these amazing experiences with God, visions, um, answered prayer, forgiveness, seeing, you know, visions, seeing, seeing God. So obviously he must be someone special, and because God gave so many signs around him. So that would be, you know, kind of a starting point. And then another place that uh, our LDS people, especially, so we're, we're thinking back to traditionally, I think if we talk about traditionally, we're talking about before the 1960s and 70s, that, that'll help give you some um, kind of a framework. So um, because RLDS figured they were the one true church, Um, Obviously, the things we believe must be the one true things to believe. And since um, polygamy is wrong and unlawful even, um, so it couldn't have come from God. And since God called Joseph, God couldn't be the author of those things. So if those things happened during Joseph's lifetime, it must have been the bad influences around Joseph, (laughs) right? Right. Uh, you know, like Brigham Young. And these are, I mean, these are exact words that people would have said. And either Joseph didn't know about it, which was a handy way to look at it, or Joseph didn't approve, and these other guys were doing this behind his back. So this is a way that some of the earlier LDS dealt with some of the inconsistencies, maybe, um, that they kind of knew about, about Joseph
1: because when you're the one true church everything has to be perfect your prophet especially right. has to be perfect and so if Joseph wasn't perfect that whole one true church thing would fall apart very very quickly so Joseph had to be perfect right it oh, makes a lot of sense to me now that i really appreciate you saying that that helps me Joseph had to be the one true prophet and beyond reproach
3: and that's all kind of one package right yeah and and then people would have said well you know Emma and Joseph the 3rd who was also a prophet didn't believe that Joseph instituted polygamy and they were closer to him than we are. So that must be true. And so it must've been somebody else's fault. So, you know, there's all of these ways that um, church people dealt with it. Yes, he was, he was really pretty perfect mostly Uh, (laughs) because yeah, if your identity, if the rightness of your church is based on the rightness of your founder there's a lot to lose, right? So, uh, so that whole dependence on the character, um, so the unsavory aspects kind of had to be dealt with. But then there was this really annoying question: is that if Joseph was so favored by God, why did God let him be killed by the mob, right? And so this became actually this is a pretty convenient answer uh, a kind of arose here because uh, LDS theology kind of said, you know, everything was going well until Nauvoo. And then Nauvoo, all the weird stuff started happening. And so, so the obvious question, answer to this question of, well, why didn't God save Joseph is that it, it's because he became a fallen prophet. So that the things that he was promoting or involved in, in Nauvoo, then meant that he was no longer a prophet. And so the consequences of that were that, that he wasn't protected by God anymore. And so that, that was all worked in there as far as the the hard side of um, the Joseph character.
2: So I have to keep repeating, this is Old traditional reorganization views. So thus far, two views: perfect pure prophet who could do no wrong, and he just he just played with bad people who, you know, <laughs> he, he hung out with a bad crowd, <laughs> and they they messed things up. Or uh, before and after, he was a That's perfect it. pure prophet up to about 1830, 1940 and then in Nauvoo, he became a fallen prophet. And uh, and in in that old theology, somehow he had to be eliminated. So so those are some traditional views.
3: So and another piece that that kind of coalesced these views of Joseph and kind of smoothed out a lot of the, the uncomfortable pieces was a book that was published in 1934 by Inez Smith Davis. That um, was called The Story of the Church. And it it provided a really I, I call it a digestible convincing, and pristine picture of the founding of the church and the founder. And, uh, and I'm just going to do a little quote from Mark Shearer's book um, related to that. Let's see if I can find it. There it is. So in 1934, the church published Inez Smith Davis's Faith Promoting the Story of the Church." and continued its publication through and beyond the 1970s. The work met the needs of people who preferred knowing only inspired deeds and heroic decision makers. Such history found itself in the mainstream of interpretation in Davis's age when consensus history carried the day. And so uh, that was a her writing. It's, a, it's what we would call apologetic theology in the church or apologetic history and it was really it's a happy book to read because <laughs> you know you're right you know that god is is god's hand is in all of this and there's no hard questions
2: in in today's language in today's political language we'd say it's the it's the perfect spin on joseph mm-hmm. smith junior and the whole and actually the whole <clears throat> and it, whole it is story. actually called the story of the church for a reason it's not it it's, was always treated as history, but there's a difference between history and story, at least from the critical historian's perspective. So yeah, so it's it's a lovely spin on the story <laughs> and on Joseph.
3: But it really promoted the whole idea of being the one true church, and all of the pieces fit. So what happens is in the 1960s and 70s we have what we call a historical awakening, and we're using new historical methods, and we're using them to look at our history, uh, to look at um, things like the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, Jr., the origins of the church, the, the divisions in 1940s, 1840s, and then um, the re- reorganization. So we were looking, we had all these new tools, but this was hard work. This was really hard work. And so for members who had grown up with this complete picture of, you know, Joseph Good. Until he falls away and then you know, and then he's dispensable. Um, or all, it's all good, and it can all be explained. So the first thing that had to happen with this new approach to history is it meant actually studying other documents and testimonies in the time of Joseph Jr in regards to him. And And we had to actually say, oh my goodness, there's a lot of people saying he's involved in all kinds of things that we would say, hmm, (laughs) a big, hmm. And lots of things that weren't included in Inez Smith's Davis, Davis's story of the church. Mm -hmm. And then we, we had, as we're looking through historical documents, we have to start taking seriously that Joseph's counselors, other leaders really close to Joseph throughout his time of leadership are disapproving of some of the theological things he's doing, some of the the actions he's taking, his behavior, his character. Um, And they either left the church uh, or were demoted and didn't have a (laughs) voice in the church anymore. And so we had to struggle with that, that that Joseph was actually muting voices that disagreed with him um, or brought things to light that he didn't want brought to light. And then... Um, The other piece that I think really was a turning point for many church members is that we became aware again. We looked at another part of our history, and that's the reorganizing part of the history, where the reorganizers are actually debating over many of the things that had been part of that latter part of the, the church's theology in the 1840s. And, you know, things like polygamy. Like gathering to a particular spot and trying to create a city um, of uh, the multiple city of gods and baptism for the dead, and these were these were sometimes raging <laughs> debates in the really in the early reorganization. And when when people who were already longtime members could start to see that you know people like. Um, Briggs Sr. Or, or Gurley or Marx, these, these reorganizers of the church, that they really had mixed feelings about Joseph, and they really wanted to avoid some of the mistakes he had made, and they really wanted to leave behind some of the theology that he had developed. That gave people permission to start to say, okay, we, we, we must let go of this idea of a pristine prophet.
2: And also, it it became hard to have a before and after view at this point, right? So once you start doing critical history on Joseph Smith Jr. and his time and period and so on, you can't just say, well, the bad stuff started in Nauvoo, and it was all good before (laughs) that, because because, you you have to deal with stuff like, all right, what about the thing with Fannie Elger in Kirtland, right? So I I don't think Ina Smith-Davis even touches that with a 10-foot pole, (laughs) right? If she knew. If she knew, right? And so- so um and the you know the whole Egyptian papyri debacle uh in Kirt- that's Kirtland right and Kirtland had become this sort of sacred time for the reorganization but critical history says no this this is there's not a before and after this is a kind of a mixed <laughs> this is a mixed salad <laughs> and uh, there's 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 little bits and pieces all through it that that maybe you don't quite like the taste of.
3: <laughs> and, you know, I think one of the other things is that even as you're reading through some of those things from the 1850s and 60s, as the reorganization is coalescing, is that leaders seldom actually directly critique Joseph. Uh, and that's partly because, um, especially once Joseph Third and Emma are part of the kind of the leadership in leadership roles and very prominent, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not wanting to point fingers at a person, but they, it's more dealing with some of the theology, some of the, the um, understandings of who God is, the nature of God, um, the trying to move away from a theocracy, but moving more towards a democracy within the body. So the body decides, not just one person decides what God is asking of, of them as a group, um, and it's always good to remember that many of the people who joined the reorganization are the dissenters, um, people who, who, who were always asking the annoying questions even before things broke <laughs> apart. So I think that's important to remember that, that that's part of the nature of, of this body.
2: It, it's really interesting to read uh, material from that era because in Nauvoo, Joseph was, was everything, you know, he's, he's mayor, he's, prophet he's oracle he's president of the university he's a
3: militia leader
2: and and so um but they they never they never say we we sure don't want to do what joseph smith jr did <laughs> they, they 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 talk about the phenomena connected to him without ever naming him and that's they, they still revered his his memory and you know to, to, some to, to some extent and they just uh, and you know when when his his widow and his son are kind of important symbolic figures you can't say your dad <laughs> and your former husband was a total jerk, right? When it came to Nauvoo, they can't—they're not going to say that. So,
3: <laughs> but as you look into those kinds of things, you have to to honestly acknowledge that there's not just one storyline here. That there's a lot of complexity, and then Joseph Jr. is a complex person um, with mm-hmm. all all sorts of characteristics—good, uh, bad, and ugly. So, so one of the things that we recognize we, we need, go ahead,
1: Carla. Well, I was just thinking, you know, one of the phrases that comes to my mind every single time I think about Joseph Smith Jr. And this is, I use this phrase a lot with seekers. I use the phrase absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Oh. And like, it's like, he almost had to keep going and proving and showing that, Oh, I can, translate these Egyptian papyri oh I can um do this oh God is speaking to me oh we must do this and just kept building and building and building and he just didn't know when to stop and people just kept kept expecting bigger and better and more wonderful things out of him and like uh, he was kind of just a a simple guy from the east coast like it's not like he was Harvard trained or anything like that so I just I that's actually how I can feel a little bit of sympathy for him when I think yes. power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, he had absolute power. Like you were just saying, Tony, he was all of these things. And what does uh, that do to someone? Yeah. yeah. And
3: what are the expectations that everything that comes out of your mouth, is from God. What does
2: that do to you psychologically, emotionally? Um, and the people who the people who could have or tried to push back on him, mm-hmm. things didn't usually end well for them. And you know, even even Emma's in a bad situation because, good heaven, she's she's a wife in the Victorian era. What if if she says I've had it, I'm done with this? What's left for her? And when a group of people in Nauvoo in 1844 said we've totally had it and we're going to publish an expose of this. Um, We all know what happened there. Right. So, so uh, yeah, uh, his, the, the, the inability of the system he created to critique him and hold him accountable became a, a real problem and reorganization remembered that. And it took a long time for the reorganization historically to say, yeah, and the source of the problem was actually Joseph himself
3: took a long time to do that. But in the 60s and 70s, that comes, that's just right in front of people as they start looking at at history, looking at a whole bunch of, of other documents that they've been unwilling to consider valid history up to that point. And so, Carla, what you just said, Joseph had to be humanized. He had to be allowed to be a human being. Um, and, you know, so the growing evidence of his involvement in polygamy, uh, theology of many gods, the his own masons group, sexual affairs, um, various unethical practices, meant that the church had to figure out how its purpose and call could not depend on the perfection of the prophet. And so that's, that raised then... Uh, the, qu- the question was out there. It was out of the, the cat was out of the bag and people had to deal with, how are we going to deal with this? And of course, some people don't.
0: <laughs>
3: some people say, Inez Smith Davis gave us this handy dandy book and it will help explain who we are. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: don't, don't mess with my framework. Well, <laughs> yeah.
3: Some people, it's, there's too many other things going on in their lives and they, they, they can't emotionally deal with that. So that's, that's one of the things. So the question is, um, how to sort through all this new information, deal with these revelations, but how to stay in a church where God has become real, where there's that connection with people, this is where I belong. I mean, for lots of people who were who are kids and older in the 60s and 70s when all of these things start unraveling. Un- being revealed and sometimes unraveling, um, they had to, to make this, these decisions. And so the following, uh, we've got a number of responses that were mostly coming from those in who were alive in the sixties and seventies, and especially those who have been deeply influenced by this old tradi- the traditional approach to Joseph. Um, I, I want to make, I want to say that because later generations, um, because of our unease with Joseph Jr. starting in the 60s and 70s, um, we didn't know what to say about him. And same with the Book of Mormon. And so we didn't say a lot for a decade or so as we tried to sort through, well, what do we put in in our Sunday school materials? What do we tell kids as they're learning about the church? And maybe the focus shouldn't be so much on Joseph. Maybe the focus should be on like I don't know, Jesus, um, <laughs> God, the Trinity, you know, maybe, and, and so that, that's one of the shifts that hap- that is happening, but there, I would say that people born in the 80s and later may not have heard very much about Joseph or the Book of Mormon, actually, and
1: yeah. So I this um, recently, actually probably 10 years ago, I was at a church in independence and they are having this children's focus moment. And they had decorated the stage, like grandma's attic. And they pulled out a picture of Joseph Smith Jr. And they said, Oh, so, you know, like, who's this guy? And none of the kids knew him. None of them them even said, is that Jesus or John the Baptist? Like we're talking like a modern picture. (laughs) And I was actually thrilled about it. I thought that that was, I mean, I'm not I think we should know some of the history, but I don't think that we should idolize him like you were saying. And I was, I was glad about that, but also glad that maybe they're learning about him in a, in a way that is a bit controlled and positive, you know, like that, like that.
3: And even that idea that this is something from our past grandma's attic, it's not essential to our everyday faith. It's, but it's, you know, it's part of our background. I, that's a lovely way that's a great to story. approach that. that. But yeah, exactly. And, and for some, I think I'm thinking about young adults who we work with for young adults who never heard any of the traditional stuff or, and some didn't have, um, there's, there's church materials out there, but they didn't get used in lots of congregations. Um, they give another view of Joseph another way of dealing with, with him as founder um, when they do find out some things like that, they're often embarrassed, self-conscious, defensive. I want to make some distance. So we'll say a little bit more about that. But for those I would say who are 40, 50, and younger, that's not an uncommon situation. So, but then, so what did the people initially, 60s and 70s, how did they how did they sort? How did they figure out? Uh, what it meant to stay so um that whole idea of the fallen prophet that we talked about earlier the fallen prophet narrative that became really popular for those who didn't want to deal with the messiness of the history <laughs> they could just say oh yeah yeah i've heard that you know basically joseph started doing some bad things and then he got wiped out and you know that's just the consequences of him falling having been a fallen prophet and then people could just leave that as, as enough of, of the story for them, and they wouldn't have to look into any of the other stuff. But many people felt deceived by the people who had taught them the story, often forgetting that that's the only story that the people who had told them the story had. Yeah. <laughs> and so how could they be deceiving? But that that created some some tensions, especially in the sixties and seventies, when there is already this defiance of authority and this trying to create a new world that that doesn't deal with follow just the conventions of society. So that was one being angry with the messenger and their inaccurate story. Uh, another was to leave. You know, some people would say, you know, we had this tidy story, a very clean cut, um, good story where good people and God made good things happen. And now we're saying, oh, my gosh, Joseph was a complicated person who messed up sometimes. And if that's what we're founded on, I don't want anything to do with it. And quite often those folks would go to more conservative um, kind of absolute faiths.
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And so that was
2: exchange one absolute, right. One absolute vision for another absolute vision, right? <laughs>
3: Feeling so they could have that sense of being absolutely secure that they were good with God and in the right organization. Another thing that um, another way that people dealt with things um, was what I call take up the sport of Joseph bashing. And within historical and theological circles in uh, RLDS and then Community of Christ, that's become something that um, when people get together, that's something that they they like to do at times, is to Joseph Bash. Um, And for those folks, that whole saying about knowledge is power, that also... Uh, became sometimes destructive within the body where they would want to shock people, other church members about this information that they had about Joseph, um, to show a, that they, they knew more, um, but also to, um, kind of force other people to go to be on the same path that they were on in their struggle with figuring out what to do with, um, with the idea of Joseph and and our history. So um, so it was really necessary for individuals and the church as a whole to no longer make the reason for the existence of the church dependent on the, the purity of a founder. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah so the, the there's there's the dawning awareness that the v- value and purpose and and divine calling of the church do not depend on one's view of the of the founder. And I and I want to be careful about founding language, because in some respects I think we need to see in the reorganization and community of Christ that we had founders, not a founder. <laughs> yes. Right. So but but you know, Joseph Smith Jr. is kind of the the archetypal start of things. But there's this this growing awareness that, hey, our our sense of who we are and where we're going and what we're becoming is not really dependent ultimately on whatever Joseph did or said, whatever his, you know, whatever mistakes he made or whatever good things he did. Right. So that's, that's a really important, that that's a kind of, that's, that's that point in like the the life cycle when the young adult says, Hey, I am my own person. I no longer depend on Carla and Kuzma. (laughs) That will happen someday to you, Carlos.
3: (laughs) So, so there's the, you know, being angry, feeling deceived, there's leaving, There's taking up Joseph bashing, but then there's also this process of humanizing who Joseph is, recognizing that he is a lot like us, um, that he sees some things clearly and some things not, that um, he was influenced, as you say, by this growing power and ability to, to cordon off power for himself and the ongoing expectations of him to be oracle and and the connection with God, the, uh, the voice, the, the leader, the one giving direction. And so there was a, um, an empathy. It was another way that people could start to deal with Joseph Jr. Is to see him as a flawed human being, just like the rest of us. And to, to not hold him to the kinds of standards that we once did. So that was another way of dealing with it. And fortunately, I would say that at that same time that we're discovering these things, those in the 60s and 70s, there's new opportunities to refocus our deepest instincts to change the world. In the past, we talked about building Zion, but in the 60s and 70s, all these new arenas in the world are asking us to come and to, to share our message. And so we have, instead of looking inwards and saying, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this problem? We're being invited to look outward. And, and in that whole process, we recognize that Jesus, God, the spirit, that's what we have to share. Not our, not the story of our history. And so, uh, and that that's a trustworthy kind of uh, message to have. In fact, it's deeply, deeply in our roots as a movement. The idea of and look at look at our sacraments in community of Christ. They're all rooted in God's love for us, God's desire to bless, in Christ's um, actions for with people in his lifetime. Uh, so it's like, oh, my gosh. So we kind of in some ways started developing a, a, a more uh, articulated Christology, um, mm-hmm. embracing the idea of Trinity that had always been implicitly in our theology, but that we hadn't really um Articulated very well in in many
2: ways. So this this process that's going on is really important because what's happening is there is a a a, de, a a detangling or disentangling of Joseph from the gospel, right? Until this point, if you if you ask a reorganite, you know, what's what's the gospel about? It was about Jesus and Joseph. And so what's happening now is that the the church in the 70s, especially and then beyond saying, wait, 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 no, no. Joseph is not an intrinsic part of the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus who reveals God by the Holy Spirit and calls us to the work of sharing, building, proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. And, you know, uh, that that uh, pulling Joseph out of the gospel story was very painful for lots of people. Um, but hey that goes all the way back to 1844 when William law William Law one of his critiques of what was happening in Nauvoo is that Joseph had made himself in the prophetic office uh, intrinsic to the message of the church and it it, it basically took over hundred years for us to <laughs> to dethatch <laughs> right to dethatch the lawn and and, and say you know the, the gospel is not about Joseph. The gospel gospel is about uh, the divine word becoming flesh in Jesus Christ and transforming the world by the Holy Spirit.
1: And I could be wrong about this because I'm not an expert in different um, denominations in the restoration, but I would say we're one of the few who has actually done that. I don't know of any other... just. I, again, I don't know a time, but I I don't know if anybody else has. Again, and that's the hard work that was thank goodness for those people in the 70s for helping us have a much clearer picture of what the gospel is and f- having us focus in on the gospel rather than go- the gospel and Joseph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it meant letting go of
3: that most precious and central for many people idea that we were the one true church. And which was, I would say, the biggest blessing that we could have had at that point is and and all the questions about Joseph helped us loosen our our grasp on that and say wait a minute maybe maybe god is enough maybe mm-hmm. christ's gospel and message and presence is enough mm-hmm. and that opened the ecumenical doors as well so we could begin to appreciate acknowledge and appreciate where god was at work in the world And so this is also a time when our term for Zion, our idea of Zion had to retire for a little while, go into move into the background. And the idea of Kingdom of God or the peaceable kingdom or the kingdom uh, had to had room to grow. And the idea of that we, even we were small, we could make a difference in the world by, um, by how we how we interacted. Uh, how we tried to live out Christ's message,
2: and, and we should say his, historically, this work actually got started in the 1960s, and we've commented on that in other podcasts mm-hmm. before. But, but it was in the 60s when that this awareness that uh, as we're trying to spread into other parts of the world, we we had this profound mix-up about what the gospel was, and we needed to. I mean that that uh, sorting process started going on earlier, but you know, it's in the seventies and eighties when it's really beginning to come into fruition and, and ultimately it yields what is today, community of Christ.
3: And it, it's a really crucial moment to the sixties and seventies, because alongside the questioning of our using these critical historical methods to look at our history and Joseph jr. It's also, there's this growing openness to um, the culture around us and the developments in that culture. And so you know, there's a recognition of the equality of women. Uh, there's speaking and acting for peace and for justice in the world. That's happening in all kinds of ways, um, with civil rights movements, but also um, with with youth movements and marches and and bringing attention to corruption of power in the United States. Anyhow, um, and and so that's all blended together, and it. It really opens up the doors for the RLDS Church, eventually Community of Christ, so that, that then there's this sense that we can, we don't have to be against what's happening in society, the the developments that make room for more love, for more justice, more equality, for a more recognition of those who've been marginalized. It, it becomes a natural, um, and and it becomes then part of oh these are ways that the kingdom of God can um, be on on the earth. But it also ties to our, our original instincts that we can help to create these spaces where God's goodness, God's love has room to grow. And so that, again, helps us lessen the importance of those things um, like Joseph, like our one true, uh, like the fact that we have books that nobody else has. It lets those things take... Um, I would say, a proper place in our identity and theology. So, and it freed us up. I mean, becoming aware that our legitimacy as a church was not dependent on the character of a founder or founders, but on God's work in our midst helped us to embrace other parts of our story and gave us a new and deeper respect for fellow Christians and we started creating partnerships. I mean, so it's all this looking outward now instead of looking inward that bloomed out of this.
2: So, and, it's, um, and along it's with
3: right. that, the sense that we're not just like every uh, everybody else, all other churches. We have a unique call, but it's not a call that's separate from other denominations' call for to do God's work in the world. It's connected. It's connected to the bigger Christian message.
2: So that that uh, coming to value who you are now and who you're becoming uh, independently of where you came from that's really important it's an important step it's it's important in personal life too and yet there's yet you 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 have to be able to say this is where we came from, but where we came from does not determine who we are and where we're going right and I, I can share a little family story about that that I'm not sure if I've shared it before but but so, Carla, one of my great grandfathers was, was a Christmas tree salesman oh, yes. in Michigan. <laughs> and guess what? He never owned any land that had Christmas trees on it. And as far as we know, he never bought Christmas trees wholesale from any Christmas tree farmers. Where did he get these Christmas trees that he sold every year in November and December? Ah, my great grandfather, Bergie, was a Christmas tree thief. <laughs>
3: Off of public lands. Yes, he
2: he he apparently he apparently uh, in November found Christmas trees and cut them down and put Unlike, them on a lot he had in his uh, on his home in in, in Michigan. But uh, I think it's a I think it's a fun story. But I'm here to tell you I'm different from Grandpa Bergy. <laughs> <laughs> so who who I am though I have Bergy genes in me does not depend. Absolutely does not depend on what grandpa great grandpa burgee did uh where he got his christmas trees and oh but and by the way he 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 drank whiskey and smoked filterless chesterfields <laughs> even as he was dying of emphysema and and i don't do that so
3: <laughs> <laughs> See, we're not tied to all of our ancestors we, we are
2: we are we are, are we, we come from a place we're not utterly, finally dependent on the place, right? We can become something else. Uh, thank God we came from someplace, <laughs> but we are not uh, completely determined by the someplace we came from.
3: So this we wanted to give that background to kind of give people who are encountering Community of Christ today kind of a, a sense of where we've been and why it's been necessary for us to to dismantle, to um, reexamine how we look at parts of our history, as well as Joseph Smith Jr. And there's a really wide range of reactions within Community of Christ. So some are theological. Some of those reactions are theological, um, and and we and so we need to ask questions like, how did Joseph Jr. draw on foundational Christian beliefs, or not? You know, and that that helps us to sort through which of the things that he had that he offered and had to say, we are still, uh, still valuable to us. And when he departed from those foundational Christian beliefs, um, why and where did he go instead? And, you know, this is just a, a simple question that we need to keep asking as we're trying to figure out what to, to do with this figure. And then another one that we always do with our theology classes is how did the four voices of theology, tradition, scripture, reason and experience, how did they figure into Joseph's emerging theologies? Because he had more than one and they changed fairly frequently. And so that's another way to start judging which of the things are relevant and useful and valuable and which are really a product of his time and can be left behind. And I think that's, that's been part of this process is we don't have to carry all of that. Um, What is relevant? What is useful? So some see uh, Joseph Jr. as the founding prophet. Uh, Again, so we still have people who are kind of in denial of the historical details. And some see him uh, as a founding prophet who was illegitimately charged with polygamy uh, while others were the cause. Um, And uh, another reaction was more ethical or moral. Uh, some people would say, well, he was a fraud. You know, he was just out and out somebody um, who, who made stuff up and um, could, could, could mm-hmm. draw on his charisma enough that he could lead people anywhere. Uh, this, some say he was a fraud, a well-meaning despot, Um where things just got out of control, or he was a seeker of power and wealth, and you know, there's evidence you could use for that. Some would say he was a lech, Well, there was some <laughs> <laughs> evidence for that, or that he was confused about where he ended and where God began, you know. And so, <laughs> and so, I think there's there's all of that. Some hold on to the ideal Joseph, who did not intentionally do anything wrong, uh, but got a bit carried away. Uh, or surrounded by by bad influences, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, Some, and I would say there's a a large portion of the church who are at peace with the idea that he was human, with flaws, with unhealthy desires, and an unrealistic sense of himself. Um, But also, he had a desire to respond to God's call as he perceived it. And so it's kind of bringing that balance. Yes, there are these flaws, but there was also this this desire to respond to God. Um, because he is human, his motivations are mixed. Um, and some things, with some things he succeeded, some he failed, others were just really bad ideas. Um, to, to start putting this into kind of a human context, the question then becomes can God make something good from the flawed attempts? of human beings and particularly this human being. And so these, this is kind of one of those theological um, ongoing conversations within people and among people in the church. And then, as I mentioned earlier, some people are embarrassed by Joseph and simply want him and the book of Mormon to be written out of our history. And uh, sometimes that's younger generations who haven't had options on how to see Joseph or it's, they're surprised by our history. Um, and so, you know, that's, there's, a, there's sometimes a tendency to reject something um, with, and this is, I guess, another step is uh, another response is, there's a tendency to reject something with the same fervor that you once embraced it. <laughs> and so for those yeah. who really took in the whole story, and then found out these things. There's a, that tendency to to reject it with that same kind of fervor. For many, um, our identity as a as individuals and as a and the purpose of the church has actually been distance from Joseph for quite a long time. It's been kind of this growing chasm, and and so. The, the prominence of who Jesus is and God's call to us has comfortably taken that space of our reverence and our purpose. And I think that's where lots of people have come to: is that okay? Yeah, that was a that was a long time ago. Or my uh, obsession with Joseph, I'm seeing that it's not really that relevant to today. So uh, let's let's go with what is relevant.
2: So, so there's all these different kinds of responses to, you know, Joseph in, in the church, and and uh, I think it's there's an interesting analogy that we can make with other denominations here. Um, for for example, you know, thought, thoughtful Lutherans um, have a complicated relationship with Martin Luther. <laughs> I mean, I, I, in, in some respects, in my view, Martin Luther is one of the most brilliant Western theologians in the lineup. But uh, he also said anti-Jewish things that fed into uh, that horrible tradition of anti-Semitism in Europe. And when the peasants in Germany revolted, in the German states revolted because they just couldn't take it anymore, Luther didn't back them. So he's got a mixed legacy, too. And so thoughtful Lutherans today have to deal with that legacy. Um, People in the Calvinist traditions, they have to deal with aspects of John Calvin's theocratic tendencies. Um, and, you know, our, our Catholic friends, they, they have various popes from their long history that uh, don't quite stack up to a John the 23rd or a, a, a Pope Francis. Um, they quite the opposite. So we're not the only ones who have to, we're not the only ones who have to struggle with what to do with our founder or a leader in our movement. And it's, this is always, you know, the, the theologian would say that's, be, that's because the founder or the leader or the initiator of a movement is not the substance of the movement. And you have to look elsewhere for that. And then the question becomes to what degree does the movement, you know, lift up, hold up on um, the centrality of Christ as God's revelation to the world, that kind of thing. Right. So, so, yeah, so we, we have to do the same kind of work. We're, we're not we're not I should say we're not alone in having to do this sort of critical sifting work and trying to make sure that that we don't let our our one of our founders and the first, you know, in our case, the first, what, uh, 14 years of our founding story uh, overshadow who we are or dominate who we are or try to block who we can become. It's very, very important that we keep doing this sort of critical work.
3: And that's where I would go to is just to say this is really important that we keep talking about this because, you know, as I indicated, there's there's a couple of generations that don't have um, much background in how how to talk about um, how the church began. And so people we've seen this uh, fairly often with young adults who whose connection to the church is their grandparents. And their grandparents are still reading Inez Smith Davis. And so they're introduced to the church's story, um, this perfected story. And they don't understand that where we are right now is really quite different because they haven't seen that evolutionary process of the last 50 years. And so there's this desire to embrace our history, meaning, you know, embracing our history means believing what what their grandparents believe without any recognition that there's a lot that's happened and lots of nuances and really a different kind of focus. Um, but for people who are um, encountering community of Christ, it, it will be helpful for them to know that there will be um, views of Joseph Smith Jr. And this relates also with the Book of Mormon. I think there'll be views that are um, very New, nuanced and developed. They've, they've taken in the information and they're able to recognize that these um, these people or these scriptures are part of the human process and that we don't have to um, see them as perfect in order for them to have been or to presently be useful by God for, for our bigger understanding. Um, but there's many who will feel embarrassed about these parts, and and people who are embarrassed react in different ways, Uh, some as denial that that's important at all, Uh, we don't want to know anything about that, or denial that there was any problems, you know, (laughs) either way, Um, and, and so there's, that's embarrassment, denial, distancing, Ditching, uh, you know, just let's toss it out completely. All of these are are common uh, approaches, but just to know that there's there's many ways that that um, you can approach these questions, and wherever you are in your own um, emotional or theological development, um, there are probably people around you who have struggled with these issues too in community of Christ, and that. Um, the conversation needs to keep going. So, so ask people uh, how they're, how they've dealt with that or what their own story of uh, changing views on on Joseph have meant. So I, that might be a way to approach it.
2: So you know at this point someone might listening to us might say, well gosh, what does it mean then that Joseph was a prophet? Mm, right And so uh, this is a place where we have to we have to let what the term prophet meant in Joseph's time, kind of shape the conversation, not what our idealized mental picture of a prophet is, right? Because as soon uh, I a prophet, a prophet must be an infallible spokesperson for God. Well, that's not what prophets were in Joseph's time. Actually, it's not what they were in biblical times, but that's a story for another time. But for example, there, Joseph is not the only prophetic figure on the American frontier,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? And by the way, in 1837, at Far West, um, in the elders journal, there's this section in the elders journal where Joseph's doing a little Q and A, right? Commonly asked questions by outsiders and Joseph's giving answers to them. And one of the questions is to, to this movement he started, do you believe Joseph Smith Jr. to be a prophet? Joseph's answer? Yes. And every other person who has the testimony of Jesus that needs to sink in. In other words, he, He's he's de-elevating what it means to be a prophet there. Being a prophet is at that moment is a shared a shared experience of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I think that's pretty important. And then also in his context, there are other prophetic figures. Right. Uh, Here's one you may never have heard of, Carla. This is a, a guy named Isaac Bullard, Isaac Bullard and the Vermont Pilgrims. This is backing up to before 1820. But note, I said Vermont, right? And Isaac Bullard is this prophetic figure, and he's got a, a community that forms around him. They're restorationists in the sense they believe that they're restoring primitive biblical religion. The guys wear bear skins. Uh, the people are filthy. They don't wash. And everything, and, and, and Isaac Bullard governs them by revelation. And they are, they're passing through Vermont, on their way out West. They finally, they think of the West as the promised land. This is like 18, almost 1820. So, so they eventually disappear. They they, they're on their way to Arkansas territory and they eventually disappear. Right. But what's similar here, right? A, a, a person who's governing a group of people by oracles and revelation. So there's also this revivalist named Joseph Thomas uh, who died in 1835. He was called the White Pilgrim. And this revivalist part of his call experience to be revivalist is he has a he has a dream in which Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, appears to him and kind of you know calls him to to the the work of evangelizing. And so we have a revivalist who who a prophet, a dead prophet spoke to in a dream and and there's Mother Ann Lee of the Shakers who. Who's in in essence? You know, she sees Christ in a vision. She forms a sort of prophetic community around her, and actually, be, they, they they begin to think of her as like a second incarnation of Christ. Now, this is Christ's second coming has come in the form of Anne Lee. But um, in other words, in Joseph's context, prophets there, there are lots of prophets, and so yeah, Joseph's a prophet in those senses so we have to be careful not to elevate elevate you know start with a kind of idealized view of what a prophet is and say is joseph a prophet or not it's like well in his context in the 1820s and 30s there are lots of figures who are doing similar kinds of things and he's a prophet in that sense and whether he is risen doesn't doesn't impact who we are today directly in the sense that we 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 have we have transformed and grown since then we we are not dependent on Our value as a community does not depend on what Joseph was, what he did, what he messed up on, what he said. We have inherited some amazing tools from him, but we get to use them in our own way, and uh, he doesn't get to control the discourse anymore.
1: Well, this has all been very, very helpful, Um, very helpful for me because I, as everyone knows, probably I work with a lot of seekers and I get the question about Joseph Smith Jr. All the time, all the time. And uh, so now I know what podcast to point them to if they want more information, after (laughs) my very sad little conversation that I have with them, because there are times when I don't know whether to let my emotional response come through with seekers or just say, you know what? Here's the, here's the argument and for and against. <laughs> it's really hard, it's really hard to separate those things out. So this has been really helpful for me. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that's been most helpful is that it's, it's a win-win. So as we started looking historically at Joseph Jr., um, we also then had to, to look at the, the humanness of the organization that we we're a part of. And I think that's the win-win: is that uh, we don't have to pretend that he or we are perfect, that or that we've arrived yet. That that we're all part of this this ongoing progress, this ongoing uh, sense of trying to respond to God's call in the world, in our time. And yes, we have those gifts, like Tony talked about, that have that from the past. Um, but God's, God's needs, God's calls in this time, um, may actually call creative energy from us in creating some new ways of embodying the church, embodying Christ's message, embodying the kingdom of God. And, um, we don't have to carry a lot of luggage in order to do that. (laughs)
1: I appreciate that very much. I also know that you two are good enough friends of mine, that if I ever start following someone where I'm wearing a bear skins and not washing, you'll let me know that this is probably the wrong way to go.
2: <laughs> we, we, we will let you know, Carla, and we also will be there to remind you, make sh- make sure your bag fits in the overhead compartment.
1: Exactly.
2: Right? if there's if there's too much baggage from our past and that doesn't fit we're going to it's going to have to be checked through
1: so. you're very good friends for helping me through that I appreciate it very much and thank you so much for this conversation I have really appreciated it it's been really really great for me thank you
3: Thanks, we're always Carla. glad to to be able to kind of dig in and pursue some of these lines of thought and things that that people might be struggling with or want to talk
0: about Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.